All right. I wasn't sure how long it was going to be. Last time I, ta- I came up here, it like, was forever long, and then this time it was forever short. So, awesome. My name is Narissa. If you don't know me yet, um, I work in the student ministry with middle school students. Woo! I know, right? Middle school and high school are absolutely amazing. Last week, we had 26 students in middle school, which was like just, whew. We usually have about 20 to 23, and having 26 was just amazing. So, praise God. Um, so, I've been coming here now for... Gosh, almost 11 years. It's been almost 11 years now. My son is going to be 10, so I started coming here when I got pregnant with him. Started with him in the nursery, and now I have my 16-year-old, a junior in high school. So they've gone through the entire ministry team here um, from nursery all the way up to high school, and we just love it. Uh, today, I'm going to go ahead and read to you Revelation 3, 14 through 19. And it says, write this letter to the angel of the church in I'm going to say L because he taught me how to say it, and I still can't say it. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you are one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise to you, buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also, buy white garments from me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. All right. I'm passed off to Pastor Steve. Thanks, guys. Okay. Fifteen. Fifteen. Some of you are going, so what kind of weird church do we come to, those of you that are newer today? No, uh, you guys, you'll notice today here in, at this service that uh, the seats uh, that are, we're no longer in first class seating things. We've made it more business class in terms of how close the rows are together. And we've added some chairs in here because in the last few weeks, it's a problem every pastor in America prays for is to have too many people coming and not enough chairs. It's a great problem to have. I need 15 of you to take the dare and jump over to Saturday night, at least for a couple of months to come try it out for us, to make sure we create open space and seating here for people. And not so much seating in here, but seating for the cars out there because parking is atrocious here. Um, so if that's you and you'd be willing to try that out for a bit, let me know on that connection card. Uh, come and try it out Saturday night. We do the same thing on Saturday night we do here. And so just come check that out. And then in the last six weeks, I was talking to Rebecca and Maggie and Tawny. Tawny's sitting right down here, our kids' men team. In the last six weeks, the number of children and families who are part of our kids' men team has doubled in size. Doubled. And for the last several months, our kids' men teams have not been fully staffed, but they kind of made it work. They figured it out, skeleton crews and duct tape and spit and whatever to make it all work. But now that we have all these kids coming, it's double in size, we can't do that anymore. And we don't want to shut down classes and say, sorry, we can't take your kids here, but we're not going to have unsafe places for kids. We can't have one high school student with 20 kids and no adults in there. So I need, wait for it, 15 of you 
especially if you're newer here and you've been coming here for three, four, five weeks and you're not on one of our teams yet, on that connection card, jot a note about Kidsman that you're going to volunteer today. And I'm not asking you to do it. I'm telling you. It'll be good for you. You'll like it. It'll be fun for you working with those kids, fourth and fifth graders back there. I mean, I'm telling you, it's a blast back there with all the stuff we have. You should go ch- wander through there and see the fun, cool classrooms and all the things they've done back there. Fifteen of you, we got to do that, guys. Um, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, if you're faithful with what I give you, I'll give you more. But if you're not going to be faithful with them, I'll send them somewhere else where people will volunteer. People will jump in and step up and not... So, Jump on a team and do that. We all say around here, join a group, join a team. Get in a small group, make some friends here and join a team. Be part of making this thing happen. Also want to encourage you to uh, park far away when you get here and sit close. There are way too many seats right over here. I know it's the farthest place in the church to sit. When you get in here, it's like, oh, you have to walk another 15 steps. Oh, gosh, what we ask from you here. But down here, there's seats down here in the front because new people who show up here, don't want to have to be wandered down to the front where there's four or five seats here. So you can be super helpful there, helping us create space for all kinds of people. Okay, Revelation, week number two, episode number two. We opened up last week and John is on this godforsaken place called the island of Patmos. It's a dirty, nasty, ugly, smelly, gross, ridiculous place. And God shows up. God shows up in the godforsaken place God shows up there and gives him this terrifying vision of himself, like, whoa, freaks John out, about kills him. He says, hey, John, I I got you. Jesus is both, we said last week, terrifying and tender. If you weren't here, the audio and video of our messages every week is on our website. We also have a, uh, on our, I think it's, it streams on Facebook. I know it's on the YouTube channel. You can subscribe to Crosspoint Church Temecula and get all that there as well. And then, John gets up and dusts himself off after being almost killed by Jesus when he sees him for who he really is. And then he says this, look, Jesus speaks to him and says in chapter one, verse 19, write down what you have seen, both the things that are, and mark this up, now happening and the things that will happen. Revelation is not just about things that are going to happen someday. It's about things that are now happening. This is in the first century. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstand. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. When Jesus shows up there, John turns around and sees like these seven big golden lampstands, seven of them, and then he sees Jesus show up and he's crazy, his eyes shine like the sun, his feet are like bronze, He's got a sword coming out of his mouth and he's got seven stars in his hand and not little twinkle, twinkle little stars like stars of the galaxy, like the things you've seen like telescope images and stuff, holding seven stars in his hand. John's going, what in the world is that all about? And Jesus tells him. Now it's uh, important uh, in Revelation You'll see in your program today, we have the trail guide for you there this week. There's also a web version of that's a little more detailed. They'll have resources and background information that'll help you navigate through Revelation so you don't get lost and stuck on some side, crazy, weird, stupid thing that oftentimes Revelation gets, gets, happens for people. Um, but one of the things that it, it talks about there is that apocalyptic literature like this, that Revelation is, that the, the events that happen there, even the numbers that they talk about, are not always and not usually scientific 
descriptions. They're not statistics saying seven. It's more what that number seven means. And the numbers in Revelation are more about what they mean than the specific statistic that they are. We'll get to more of that with other numbers and things that come up in the next few weeks. So seven's going to be an important number there in Revelation. He says that those seven lampstands are seven churches. And it's, again, it's symbolic. Churches are not literal lampstands. But the idea that Jesus says, my church will be the light of the world. And so when he shows them in some symbolic form. He says they're going to be the light that lights up the world, Jesus tells us. And the big question that comes up when you're reading for the first time is, what in the world? An angel of a church? What does that mean? There's three possible explanations. We're going to go through these really fast. It could be he's talking about there's actual angels assigned to every particular church that meets. There's the cross point angel in our community. There's the reliance angel. There's the orchard angel. There's the rancher community. There's angels perhaps assigned supernatural beings assigned to the church. We don't often see them, don't usually see them. Once in a while, they show up and interact with us on the human level. So supernatural beings of some kind, it could be that. Uh, second thing it could be is that the word angel uh, is a transliteration of the word that the, the Greek language the Bible is originally written in, angelos or angelos, just mean that it's, it's, that's the word they use for angel, but it's also the word they use for messengers. Frequently in the Bible, uh, it will talk about these messengers of God, the messenger of God, and it's the angelos, angels of God, and so you, they'll use the word angel. But frequently in the Bible as well, it will talk about the angelos of King David, the angelos of the king of Tyre. And he sent, it was a guy just with a message. So it's possibly he's talking about the person that brings the message to the church. Talk about maybe the pastor, the leaders of the church. It could be that's what he's talking about. I write this letter to the pastors of these churches for them to communicate to their church. And it could also be just the ethos or the metaphysical ethos and spirit of the church. Which one is it? We have no idea. Nobody knows for sure. Exactly. Maybe what we need to get out of this is to go, there's more going on here at Cross Point Church than what you can just see physically. There is the angels are on the move. That God is doing something. Uh, there's more going on you can physically sense and see. We're also telling you guys, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3 today. Uh, as this vision, before we see all the visions and the crazy things that are in Revelation, uh, Jesus tells John, write a letter to these seven churches. We uh, on the, the website that's there, that's linked there on the, if you uh, scan that QR code, every week we'll have the reading assignment. You'll also see on the bottom of your note sheet today, on the back of that program, every week we're going to tell you, you're going to get way more out of this when you show up here, especially with Revelation, if you've not just hearing it for the first time when you show up here. So next week assignment is to read Revelation 4 and 5. You'll be better, you'll get more out of this if you don't just hit this uh, with a blank slate when you show up here on Sunday morning. Revelation 2 and 3, what we're looking at today. In Revelation chapter 1, though, it tells us in chapter 1, verse 12, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, those are the seven churches, and standing in the middle, mark that, middle of the lampstands, was someone like a son of man. This is the title that Jesus used for himself. He's son of God, son of man, God in the flesh. Um, it's kind of fashionable, both both in our culture right now, you'll see all kinds of celebrities and, and religious and social commentators. It's even kind of cool and hip in the church to say, well, I love Jesus, just not the church. Because the church is kind of, eh. And you know how it is too. Yeah. People all the time say, well, the church is just full of hypocrites, 
and self-righteous people. And my response is always, come on in, there's room for one more. Because that whole statement, oh, I don't want to go there, hypocrites and self-righteous, like, who the heck do you think, look what you just did here. You'll, and here at Crosspoint, if you want to find a bunch of hypocrite and self-righteous people, just look around the room today. Look up here. Everywhere that's there. Um, there's a, a famous song, I didn't even know it, I've just heard it all over the radio and on restaurants and on elevators called Stuck in the Middle. It was like a one-hit wonder band from way back in the 70s. I had to actually find out the name of the band this week. Uh, but this is Jesus' prophetic message to us uh, through the band. I don't even know their name, but the song Stuck in the Middle. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. You can't get Jesus without the church. Jesus says, you know where I am, where you're going to see Jesus most present and most active in the middle of these jacked up, screwy, weird, bizarre churches. Uh, one of the books that I read uh, like crazy for this series is a book by uh, Eugene Peterson. It's on that little uh, website that's linked on our website, and uh, you can scan the QR code for it. It's called Reversed Thunder. And he talks about this, talks about Jesus and the church. It's a longer quote. It'll be up here on the screen. Um, it says this. It is not possible to have Christ apart from the church. We try. We would very much like to have Christ apart from the contradictions and the distractions of the other persons who believe in him or say they do. We want a Christ who is pure goodness, beauty, and truth. We prefer to worship him under the caress of a stunning sunset, over the inspiring tonality of a soaring symphony, or by means of penetrating poetry. We would like to put as much distance as possible between our worship of Christ and the indifferent singing and fussing moralism which somehow always gets into the church. We are passionate after God, but cool towards the church. <laughs> it is not irreligion or indifference that keeps many away from the church, but just the opposite. The church is perceived and experienced, and look, I love this next line here, as a carcinogenic pollutant in the pure air of spirituality. Many people wanting to nurture faith in God instead of entering a company of saints who still look and act a lot more like sinners take a long walk on an ocean beach or hike on a high mountain or immerse themselves in great books or Stravinsky or Georgia O'Keeffe or country music, etc. But to all this aspiring spirituality, the gospel says no. Here's the deal. In the Bible, one of the analogies that God uses as an analogy for his relationship with us, one of them is that we are called collectively the bride of Christ. I have had the privilege over the years of being a pastor to do a lot of weddings. And when that girl, when they open that back door and the music changes, everybody like, oh, there comes the bride. Never look at the bride. I look at the dude standing right there. I looked at some dudes there that are like all manly men that are like whatever and they're they don't cry or they fall apart when they see her because they are just overwhelmed and stunned by her. You guys walk up to me and tell me you think I'm awesome and I'm amazing. You guys do that a lot here. You're super encouraged all the time by so many of you. But you walk up to me and tell me I'm awesome, amazing, and you love me, and I think you're whatever there. But your wife, she's kind of disgusting. I can't stand her. We're going to have a problem. We are not going to be friends if you think that about my wife. No way. And the idea that you can say, well, I love Jesus, but his church makes me kind of sick. Jesus goes, we're going to have a problem, pal. 
Listen to what else Eugene Peterson says here. The churches churches of Revelation show us that churches are not Victorian parlors where everything is always picked up and ready for guests. They are crazy, messy family rooms. Entering a person's house unexpectedly, we are sometimes met with a barrage of apologies. John does not apologize. Things are out of order, to be sure, but that is what happens to churches that are lived in. They are not showrooms, they are living rooms. And if the persons living in them are sinners, then they're going to be clothes scattered about, handprints on the woodwork, and mud and other stuff on the carpet. For as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the righteous to repentance, and there is no indication as yet that he has changed his policy in that regard, churches are going to be an embarrassment to the studious and an affront to the upright. I get a little nervous. It doesn't ever, it's never happened here at Crosspoint. But if I was part of a church where everything was all buttoned up and there were no problems, whenever I go like something's not right here. The, the sign, there's jacked up, weird, screwed up people. Gosh, this week we had three or four things. I go, what's wrong with these people? It's a sign that something's happening here. They, they should be a, a bit messy if there's real people living there. Now, as we look at these letters today, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there's a pattern in them that you need to see. And it's in every single one of the letters. We're going to do a flyby of these. We could have done a, a series on this and done seven straight weeks and looked at every single one of these churches. We're not going to do that. You can go get other books and research it and do it yourself. I was talking to a guy named Paul before the service who's kind of doing that kind of stuff. You'll get more out of it if you dive into it yourself. But the pattern is this, as he writes these letters. It's affirmation, correction, and motivation. Affirmation, that's the, you'll see on your note sheet there, positive stuff. Correction is like, oh, there's some stuff that's a problem here we have to pay attention to. And then motivation and, and this is going to be helpful for you, not just as looking at patterns for letters to churches, but if you lead anything, if you're a boss in a company, if you lead a family, if you are a, cl- a teacher in a classroom, your kids, your, your, your children, your employees, the people you work with need affirmation, correction, and motivation. Now, in each one of these letters that we're going to look at, we're going to fly through them today, there are some phrases that are repeated in every single one. I'm going to give you the three. We're not going to write, don't write these down yet because they're on your note sheet. One of them is every letter concludes with, to those who have ears to hear, they should hear, they should listen up to what the Spirit saying to the church. It's also going to tell us at the beginning of each letter, God's going to come and says, I know. I know what's going on here. I know what's going on in your life. I know, I know. That repeated every time. And then the other thing that's repeated is that to those who are victorious, there are great rewards coming for you. So victory is possible. So it's, it's listen up, I know, and victory is possible. Now let's take a look at, at, at some of that. When it comes to listen up, the, the Spirit's gonna say, he says, listen to what the Spirit's saying to the church. I wonder, when God wants to speak to you, are you listening And what it takes to really hear the voice of God will be two things. Write these down. Frequency and fervor. I'm not sure what comes up here. Yeah, frequency and fervor. The idea of, you can't just come to church once a week and think you're going to hear God speak to you and that's the only time you need to hear God speak. You need to join a small group and be around other people, other Christians who will speak into your life and soul and get their Bibles out and speak and talk about that stuff. And then on your own, by yourself, you need frequency. And it also has to be It's kind of a crack up because we have, 
If we were to Google this, the number of Bibles you could download on that smart device you have, the number of paper Bibles that you have in your house probably right now, we've grown so used to the fact that God has spoken something into our existence and he's let us have it. And our attitude to the Bible is, well, he's let us have it. Do I have to? Yawn. I'd rather binge watch some dumb Netflix Prime video thing for 17 hours than to take 17 minutes and go, I wonder if God has something to say to me. And to come, look, if you come, your small group leader will be amazing if you come with a sense of expectation and not a sense of, well, I hope they don't suck tonight. (laughs) I'll be a better pastor. You'll get way more out of this if you come with a sense of, I'm excited about this as opposed to, well, you know, I hope it's not, you know, whatever. I'm telling you, you've come with a sense of positive expectation You will get way more out of it if you come excited about it. Even if I'm a disaster that particular weekend, you'll get stuff out of it. He says, I know. Uh, He says, listen up. Uh, And then he says, I know. And we have a God who's in the midst of us. Like, remember we talked about that he's in the middle of the seven lampstands? God says, I know what's going on. And I know that some of you are in trials and difficulty. And you're hanging on by a thread. And it feels like sometimes, remember Bette Midler's song back in the 80s or 90s that God is watching us from a distance? He ain't from a distance. He's right in the middle of us. And it sometimes doesn't feel like he really knows. Some of you are probably there today with stuff going on in your life, whether it's trials and difficulty or just you're kind of going through a uh, season. Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I see you, I know you. He's also gonna tell us, for those of you who think you're getting away with anything, you're not getting away with jack squat, pal. He says, all that shenanigans and sin and foolishness, do you think you fooled everybody else around you? You may fool everybody else around you, you haven't fooled me, pal. I know what's going on. Now we're gonna go fly by these letters uh, to these seven particular churches. So listen fast. Listen fast here. He says to the church in Ephesus, look at Revelation chapter two, verse two. I, remember that I told you? No, mark that. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. You know what he says about Ephesus? The positive affirmation here is commitment to truth and integrity. And you guys are committed to truth and integrity. That's the affirmation. And then verse four, but I have this complaint against you. Not a whole list. I have one thing against you. It's a big thing. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. This is the, some of your Bibles say you've left your first love. Here's the thing he has a problem with here. He says, all your commitment to truth and integrity is obligation without adoration. There's no love there. Guys, can I just tell you right now, that one speaks to me all the time because I'm one of those tightly wound firstborn children, get good grades, do all the right things. You know why? Because you're supposed to. You're supposed to. That's the right thing to do. I'm telling you, just doing it because you're supposed to will not last for you with Jesus. Until there's, until there's love and affection and adoration, that's what's going to keep you moving, keep your passion going there. We're going to get to the motivations to, the, to the, the victory is possible statements. We're gonna go back through this again here. I'm gonna go through the affirmations and corrections first. So that's the first church. To the church in Smyrna, he says, chapter two, verse nine, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are 
rich. And he goes on to talk about, I know, but people are opposing you. He says the devil is going to test you. Verse 10, you will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I'll give you the crown of life. The church in Smyrna, you'll notice there, he doesn't say anything negative about them. It's just positive. And the positive is this, you look poor, but you're rich. This is one of the key things that Revelation, that John, Jesus and John are trying to do here is to be an apocalypse, to pull back the curtain and say things are not as they seem. You feel poor. You feel like you got nothing there. You feel like you're just a joke and a disaster, uh, but you are rich. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter five, it's recorded for us. It's blessed are those who are poor because the kingdom not will be theirs. The kingdom is theirs right now. Even if you feel like you're poor and like, what am I doing here? He said, you got the key. You are rich beyond your wildest dreams. The church in Pergamum. Look at verse 13. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. They live in you think Vegas is bad, man, Satan City. That's how, that's how little, that's a little uh, nickname for this, for Pergamum. And he says, here's what he says that's positive about them. He says, you're loyal to Jesus. You stayed loyal to me. And you stayed loyal to me even when they start killing you. You go, that's pretty awesome church, right? If you guys get coming to church after they killed people in here, you go, that's, that's pretty awesome. There's kind of loyalty to Jesus no matter what. But here's the, here's the correction. I have a few complaints against you. You... Mark this in your Bible, tolerate. Some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food sacrifice to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I'll come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The problem with Pergamum, problem with Temeculin, Probably going to tell us that you're too tolerant. You're loyal to Jesus, but you're tolerating things. You have no business, like false doctrine and false teaching and errors. Of that. And, and here's why we do this, guys. We will tolerate all kinds of things until we want people to like us. My, my, I write a book someday about leadership is that everybody's still recovering from seventh grade. We're still insecure. We want people to like us. We want to fit in and have people think we're cool and exciting and amazing. So Jesus has some tough things about being the only way. Jesus has some standards about sexuality. We go, mm, yeah, but we can, we're loyal to Jesus. He doesn't really care about that stuff. Jesus goes, no, I'm paying attention to that. That, that matters to me. Amen. Even if you have people getting killed for your faith, how you do sexuality, how you do doctrine and truth and, and being too open-minded and too tolerant is not going to be a good thing for you. Tolerating things that are evil is always a terrible thing. You're too tolerant. The church in Thyatira, look at verse 19. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your, mark this in your Bible, constant improvement in all these things. What he loves about Thyatira is they're constantly improving. This is good news for me. You need to hear this today from Jesus. The affirmation, like, look, you're not all the way where you're supposed to be yet, but look where you were. I mean, you've been constantly improving. Little by little by little. Jesus is stoked about that for you. Constantly improving, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin, eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent 
but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. The problem there is, you'll see there in verse 20, that word permitting. The church in Thyatira is kind of like the church in Pergamum. You're just, he says you're too permissive. You think Jesus doesn't care about how you spend your money? Doesn't care about sensuality and sexuality. I mean, come on, it's the 21st century. What's crazy about this, we tend to think in the 21st century that we're the ones that all have all this crazy sexual stuff going on. This was going on back in day one of the church. They were way more advanced in their sexual sin and their all their crazy deviant behaviors. Just study history sometime. And look at archaeological drawings of the pornography they put in full view for women and kids and everybody to see. He says, you're, you're, you're too permissive when it comes to sexuality and sensuality. Uh, the next church, chapter 3, at the end of verse 1, the church in Sardis. He says, I know all the things that you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You'll notice that Sardis does not have one good thing said about them. Jesus looks at them and says, you're a joke. You look good on the outside, I'm going to peel back the curtain and go, you're, you're a joke. You're, you look alive. You're dead. Some of you need to hear that today because you look like you have your act together. You look like everything's good. Everybody, nobody would have a clue that there's a mess in your life because you're really good at image management. Everybody thinks everything's awesome with you. wonder if Jesus would say to some of us today, you know, you look like you have your act together. Everybody knows. Nobody knows, but I know. You look alive. There's, you're actually dead. Church in Philadelphia, look at verse eight. It says, I know all the things you do and I've opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Uh, the Philadelphia church, the positive thing he says about them is this, you are barely alive. And you look at that and go, that's a positive thing? Some of you need to hear this today too. Because some of you in your walk with God, some of you in the addictions and things that you're struggling with, with your sin and your evil, the conditions of your marriage, the conditions of things that your kids, is you are hanging on by a thread. You are, your fingernails are grasping the little ledge on the rock and you are hanging on for all your might and you have little strength left. And Jesus says, I love that about you. That no matter how weak you feel and feel like we're, we're barely alive here, he says, oh, love that about you. And he has nothing negative to say about them to the church in Philadelphia. And then what uh, Nerissa just read for us, the church in Laodicea, verse 15, I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind naked. The church in Laodicea, he says, nothing positive about them either. He says, you are lukewarm. And it's with God, he goes, yuck. Not a very exciting, uplifting message so far, huh? Especially at Laodicea. You wonder, does God think that about us? Like we are kind of not hot nor cold. We just kind of, kind of, Try to keep the Christians pleased in our life and treat the non-Christians pleased. Kind of be a little bit of sin over here, a little bit of good over here. Just kind of mix it all together. Jesus goes, ugh. 
And the word there, spit you out of my mouth, is not like, mm, I don't like that, and spit it out in a napkin and go. It's no, it's when you eat something nasty and bad and just, <clears throat> it just spews everywhere. He goes, that's, it's like projectile vomiting. Is what he's talking about here. But every letter wraps up. As he's described these churches, I know the good things, affirmation, and some correction that he gives. He says, victory is possible for you. And he says, victory is possible, not just for the good churches. Victory is possible for places that are making God sick right now. Victory is possible where it feels like they're just dead. There's no life there at all. Victory is possible for everyone. Now, this is important. When you work with people, whether it's in your family, in your marriage, with people you supervise in your job site, uh, the, the common thing is you want to find positive things to say about people before you tell them the negative. And you certainly want to do that. But from time to time, it is silly and ridiculous to pump people up when there's nothing good to be said right now. Because then like your compliments and your affirmation didn't mean anything. Because everybody else is going to go, well, you said all this. Everybody knows they're a disaster. And you go, well, then how do we keep it positive? The positive thing is not like, you're awesome, you're amazing, even though they're a disaster. The positive thing you say is, victory is possible for you. You can turn this thing around. God can turn this thing around. That's the positive message you have to have. That you can grow, you can get through this. You don't have to stay stuck in this. And so we're gonna go look now at, at these churches again. Look back at chapter two again, Ephesus, and see what the motivation is. We've seen the affirmation and the correction, now the motivation. Before I do this here, don't put it up on the screen yet, but um, the message Jesus has to the church in the first century, in the 21st century, is the same message. Turn around and hold on. If you want to summarize it, turn around and hold on. Uh, look what he says to the church in Ephesus. You're a mess, you don't whatever. Look how far you've fallen. Look at verse five. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, that word repent just means turn around. See, following Jesus is not often easy or usually easy, but it is not complicated. Over and over again, there's going to be things Jesus will go look at your life today and my life and go, hey, I like this and this and this and that. Over here, you got some stuff you got to work on here. You're kind of being ridiculous over here. You're in blatant sin right now and you've maybe been blind to it. So I've opened your eyes to it now. Quit walking this direction. Turn around. Let's go this way. Just turn around. Not always easy because there's something about that wants to keep pulling us back. He says, and again, repentance for the Christian is almost a daily occurrence. It's not like you have this big, I'm going to repent today and now I'm right with God. No, you're going to get right with God every single day. So he tells the church in Ephesus, your motivation here is turn around. Your motivation, you can turn around. Victory is possible for you if you will turn around. The church in Smyrna, he says there at the end of verse 10, you will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I'll give you the crown of life. He says, you feel like a loser. Hold on. Just keep holding on. This is the idea of the Bible word of perseverance. Just hold on. And some of you go, well, I can't hold on. I do have to hold on for the next two years. Don't worry about the next two years. You know what you have to hold on for? Today. Amen. And then tomorrow when you wake up, you know what you do? Hold on tomorrow. And you keep holding on 
day after day like that. Hold on. The churches in Pergamum and Thyatira, both that were too permissive and too tolerant of evil and sexuality, sin, and all that kind of stuff, he says, hey, um, to them, Pergamum, he says, verse 16, repent of your sin. Turn around. Turn around and I'll come to you or I'll come to you suddenly. And he gives them some threats. He says, but victory is possible, verse 17. He says, same thing in, into the church in Thyatira. But I want to see at the end of the church of Thyatira's message here, look at verse 24. He says, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. I don't know if you've ever been part of a church been part of a small group, been part of a neighborhood group, been part of a company, been part of some kind of grouping of people where you feel like, I'm the only one here trying to do this right. When it comes to business trips and stuff like that, the guys are all going out to the strip clubs and prostitutes and doing all kinds of crazy, sketchy stuff. The people do all the kind of crazy, sketchy stuff when it comes to dishonesty and shading the truth in the business world. I'm the only one. Sometimes you're going to feel like you're the only one. And Jesus says, I know. I see you're the only one. Hold on. Hold on. If you're faithful to me, even in the midst of being the only one. The church in Sardis, he says, you're a joke. All this pretending. He says, you're a disaster and you know it. He says, victory is possible for you. He tells them, in verse three, go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent. Turn around and turn to me again. The, Jesus goes, like, the message is not complicated. Just turn around from whatever you're doing that's making a mess out of here. Turn around. And he also tells them in verse, uh, chapter three, verse four, same thing in Thyatira. Yet there are some in the church who have not soiled their clothes. He says, stay faithful to me, even in the midst of a jacked up, screwed up, messed up situation. The church in Philadelphia like the church in Smyrna, hanging on by a thread. You're not going to make it. And you can't even say, and I'm not going to take it because you have to take it because you got no power. You feel like you've just got no power, nothing here. Look what he says here. Verse 10, because you have obeyed my command to persevere, to hold on, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. He doesn't say hold on so that someday you get the crown. You know what he's saying right now? You feel like a loser? You know who's got the crown of victory on their head right now? The Philadelphia Christians. You feel like losers. You've got no strength there. You got the, things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. I see you. You're the winners here. Even though in the eyes of the world you feel like complete losers and jerks and morons and whatever you feel like right now, he says you're the winners. You're the winners. The church in Laodicea. Um, when I was a youth pastor, even done it here at this church probably a couple of times, this church in Laodicea is one that Christ pastors love to use to preach messages against complacency in the church and stand up here and wax eloquent about what a jacked up mess all this complacency in the church is. You're not hot or cold. You make Jesus sick. He wants to spit you out of his mouth. And that's the message here. I got God just really made God mad. He isn't like me. He wants to vomit me out of his mouth. He make ugh. Uh, that's a, a difficult message to hear. And sometimes that's all we do with that. And we miss, if we don't actually do this novel thing like actually read the Bible for ourselves, 
we'll be led to believe some dumb things about what Jesus thinks about us. This church that he has said, ugh, about you. Look at verse 19. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. He's going to say to them, and I love this too, verse 20, look. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. To the church that he's going, ugh, right now, invite me back in. Here's the crazy thing about this. This little picture here, I grew up in a church and they had these pictures of Jesus knocking on your heart's door and all that. You probably have somebody having your Bibles. It's a great picture of like what it means to come to faith for the first time. We use it for kids all the time. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Like your heart is a room and ask Jesus to come into your life and open the door of your soul. And we use this first talk about that. But Jesus here is not primarily talking about people who aren't Christians right now. He's talking to Christians. You know what he's saying is? You think you have Jesus in your life? Jesus left a long time ago. And he wants back in. He's knocking on the door with his nail-pierced hands saying, I bled and died for you. I love you all the way. Some of you need to hear this today, too, because when you're here, I'm like, God, there's some tough things Jesus says of these churches. You need to know that the God who says this for you says, because I love you, I'll say some tough things to you from time to time. I was talking to a parent this week with her daughter, <laughs> who's just making her crazy right now. I said, every parent needs to be willing to have their kids hate them for a while. Because if you, if you, look, if you didn't love them, it'd be kind of like to hell with you. I don't care. Skip school, get F's, do drugs, sleep, do whatever you want. I want to have my kids, because again, the cultural ethos of our times is happiness is the truth. And if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Jesus goes, yeah, it can be. It can jack your life up. And because he loves us and he proves his love for us, not just with words, he proves his love to us by sacrificing his life for us today. So as the band comes up right now, Oh, I'm sorry, Laodicea, what he's telling us there, what's the last thing there is reopen the door is what he tells him. You've opened the door for me once. I left a while ago. You didn't even know it. I want to get back in. Reopen the door for me. And so here's the deal with something like this today. If you're sitting here today thinking, I know some people who should hear this message, you have heard this completely wrong. If you think this message is for the culture out there, the world out there that's all jacked up with sex and false teaching and tolerating too much, You've heard it completely wrong. And if you think, you know, I know some Christians who should hear this. Heard it completely wrong. This is not for them. This is for me. And the admonition here that he wraps up every letter with is, to those who have ears to hear, listen. Listen to what the Spirit is saying, not to them, but to me, and my prayer for you all this week as we met with our prayer team yesterday especially was God speak very specifically. Spirit, speak into people's lives. Because some of you today, all you need to hear today is affirmation. Just keep going. Hold on. Some of you probably need some correction on some things. You might be some good things over here, but there's some stuff over here that God wants to point out in your life going, hey, there's some stuff over here that you need to pay attention to. You say, turn around from that. Some of you are a hot mess and disaster today. Probably two out, of, two out of every seven of you here are a disaster because that's like two out of seven churches were a joke and a mess. That might be so five of you are okay, two of you are a mess and we don't even know who you are. Jesus says, but it doesn't matter because my love for you is my love for you all the way right now. 
I died for you. I love you all the way. And how you treat me doesn't change one bit of how I love for you. I can't love you any more or any less. So his imploring words is like, let's go. Let's get this thing going again. So whatever you need to hear today, I want God just to speak that in your life. If you came in today, though, hanging on by a thread in some area of your life, in your marriage, in your personal life, with some of your stuff you're struggling with, our prayer team is at the back of the house today. And we're gonna, the lights are going to go down here in a bit. And people will be getting around, moving around to come and receive communion. I'll tell you about that in a second. Go back there and let them, talk with them for a bit. And let them pray for you and pray with you about what's going on in your heart and soul and life. Don't do it alone. In the four corners of the room is communion. It's bread and juice symbolizing the body and the blood of Jesus. That even when he says tough things to us, and we go, man, it feels like you hate me right now. I go, no, no. I don't hate you. I love you. My body was broken. My blood was spilled for you. And he calls out to us to come back to him. So we're going to sing today. We're going to receive communion today. We're going to pray today. And guys, I want you to listen right now to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you. So Jesus, right now, for the next 15, 20 minutes, We are listening to what you want to say to me.